This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Hello and welcome back to Big Mood, Little Mood with your host, Daniel M. Lavery. This week in the studio, I am joined by Dr. Paula Stone-Williams, an internationally known speaker on gender equity, LGBTQ advocacy, and religious tolerance. She's also a pastor and pastoral counselor in Boulder County, Colorado. Paula, welcome to the show. Oh, it's so good to be with you. Thank you so much. This is, uh, I, I think I can say fairly decisively, one of the first times I've spoken with a pastor in quite some time. Uh, and I'm so glad that it's you. I'm so glad that these are the circumstances under which I am uh, speaking to uh, a minister. Yeah, it's probably, um, that's probably a good thing that you've not talked to a pastor in a long time. It didn't go great the last time. Uh, religion in America right now is a little strange. <laughs> Yeah, I I don't want to spend too much of our time before we get into these questions, um, sort of diving into that topic, although I did seek out a few religion-themed questions uh, for us to to get into today. But yes, it's a a fraught subject, is it not? Would you be so good as to read our first letter? Sure. And the subject of it is more support. I am not close to my family, not for any earth-shattering reason. They're just very waspy, small-town folks, and I'm a progressive city dweller. My sister only talks to me when she wants something and is not interested in my life. I've always tried to be approachable to her children. I buy them gifts and write cards, encouraging them with what little I know about their lives and asking them to reach out to me, but they never have beyond thank-you notes. I only see them once every few years. I always felt a special connection with my niece because we bonded a lot when they were small, and others in the family favored their older brother. Recently, I've noticed my sister has been posting a lot of LGBTQ pride messages and the trans flag. I also noticed that in her posts about my niece, now 15, she uses gender-neutral terms to refer to them, and they have a short haircut. I want to know what, if anything, is happening, not only to support, but also because I'm worried this is a known thing in my family already, and no one cared enough to tell me. My family has a history of not telling me news, when relatives die, for example. Also, my nephew tentatively came out in his early teens. I fought with my parents about it and said that they had to accept him if they wanted me in their lives, and then I never heard anything about his sexuality again from my parents or my sister or him. So I have no clue what ended up happening there. For what it's worth, I do think my sister would be lukewarm supportive of a trans and non-binary kid, but I want my niece to be, like, boiling hot supported. I don't know how to ask about what's going on without upsetting the apple cart. I don't have any way to directly contact them except mail. Any thoughts? I do. I do have a a few thoughts on on this one. I thought it was useful that the letter writer described their desire for their niece to be boiling hot supported. And I just want to point out, Boiling hot is not supportive. Boiling hot is so hot you have to jump out of the hot tub. Boiling hot is too much, too fast, all at the same time. So while I, I realize that the letter writer is is using 
colorful imagery there. I, I do want to be mindful of, there's, there's a lot going on here just in terms of, I want to be in on what's going on with the family. I want to know everything. I want to support everybody. I want to, you know, drag the rest of the family into being supportive if I fear that they're not. Many of which are loving impulses, but can easily, I think, shade into doing too much, too fast, uh, in, in too many different directions. And that that is something to be uh, cautious about, I think. You know, I would say that um, I run into this type situation a lot. I'm a psychotherapist by trade. My doctorate's in pastoral counseling. And I find a lot of family dynamics like this to be really rather typical. I always say to people that family can be a comfort, a complication, or a cross to bear. And there are a lot of things that determine which category a family falls into. And one of the most basic is, does the family have a shared moral foundation? Because if a family doesn't have a shared moral foundation, it's awfully difficult to have any real sense of unity. And we know from Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind, that looking worldwide, there are basically three moral standards in the world. There's the moral standard of the individual, that there's no greater moral good than to look out for the best interest of the individual. This would be the moral standard of most of the secular West, most more liberal religions, and certainly is the perspective that I hold and most of the members of my church. The second moral standard says that there's no greater moral good than to protect the integrity of the tribe. And this is a moral standard that functioned quite well uh, for our uh, species for millennia. But you don't see it as often today except in developing nations. The third moral standard is the standard that there's no greater moral good than to obey the teachings of the gods. That moral standard is true all over the world among fundamentalists. So that's basically fundamentalist religion. And it seems to me here that there might be different foundational standards at work. It seems that the person writing this note is someone who would say, I'm in the, the greatest moral good is to look out for the best interest of the individual. But it isn't clear to me that that's where the family is coming from, that uh, I'm wondering if the family has a religious background or not. Uh, I'm wondering how the patriarch or matriarch of the family has, impacts everyone. Uh, but it doesn't seem like uh, the rest of the family members have quite that same level of commitment to the growth of the individual. Yeah, so, you know, without trying to spend too much time speculating on what different sort of frameworks they might be using here, I, I want to, I think, advise this letter writer based on, you know, what relationship do you have with your nieces and nephews and what possible forms of, you know, contact, uh, attempted shows of support might be possible, welcome, and what might feel like an intrusion. So, you know, the letter writer says, I always send them cards. I let them know, you know, I'm available if you ever want to call or talk. So you've been doing that, which is great. So far, they haven't taken you up on that. That's, you know, useful information. You do know, letter writer, that your sister has been posting a lot of pride messages and the trans flag, presumably in a positive way. So I do think you can take some of that to heart that, you know, even if she is not doing as robustly supportive a job behind the scenes as she is on Facebook, she is publicly saying positive things about, you know, presumably her her trans or non-binary kid. So that's, I think, reason to believe that your sister would at least be open to the possibility of your saying, hey, I've noticed you've been posting a lot of pride messages lately. That's 
Wonderful. I support that. Great. And see how that goes. You know, that that seems to me, if not like a direct uh, olive branch, at least a possibility for a conversation of shared uh, shared values. You say, you know, I, I told my parents to support my nephew when he came out. Since then, no one's been telling me anything. You know, I would resist, I think, the desire to frame somebody else's orientation or transition as news. I, I understand why it might feel that way, but there are a number of reasons why your your niece or nephew may not want to have a big coming out conversation with other relatives. And so I do think that like, if you were to try to get in touch with your 15-year-old uh, sister's kid like directly and just say, hey, your mom seemed really supportive of you know, queer people lately. Are you trans? I noticed you got a haircut. I want you to know that that's great. Like, I, I hope you can hear that the way that that might feel actually like way too much for this kid who's just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, this was not an invitation to call me up and like ask me, you know, what am I doing? I see one other thing occurring that, that you see far too often, and that is that the letter writer is making assumptions about the level of support that the sister is providing. And clearly is not in a, in a circumstance to be able to uh, accurately make an assessment. Uh, so making assumptions in that point is kind of dangerous. It, it's probably a lot better to speak directly with uh, the relative, uh, with the sister, and say, "Tell me, tell me whatever you're comfortable telling me," and trying to get the information directly as opposed to making assumptions. Honestly, when the day's done, I don't think there's a lot that the letter writer can do unless the family is reaching out to the letter writer. And I think that's one of the things that probably is is best for them to, to recognize is that this might not be an opportunity for them to be able to, to show a lot of very personal support to this young person. It might yeah. instead be a situation where they've just got to kind of sit back and, and wait until um, everything plays out. Yeah. And, I, you know, I, I feel a little self-conscious. I feel like I've I've been a little brusque with this letter writer. And I, I do want to acknowledge like, you know, you care about your sister's kids. You want to offer your support. You've you've always felt a special connection with them and wish you were a little bit closer. I have great sympathy for all of that. I don't think that you've done anything like nosy or officious or or stepped out of bounds. So I, I hope none of this has come across as like a, a reprimand of any kind. But yeah, what you want right now is a closer relationship to your sister's children than the one that you have. You have limited opportunities for creating more points of contact. I think the most you can do right now is simply say something warm and affirming to your sister and ask if she has anything else she'd like to share with you. Um, if she doesn't, I'm sorry. I, I wish that she would, but you you can't really force that. And um, I just don't see a way for you to, based on the like infrequent contact you do have with your niece and nephew, say anything like, I've indirectly seen that you got a haircut or like, I heard you tried to come out a few years ago and I'm not sure where you're at. Like, you just don't have that relationship with them, I'm afraid. And you have to trust that they are getting it from other people in their life. You don't have any reason to think that their parents are currently like um, treating them badly, for example. Like all you know, in fact, is that your sister's doing surprisingly well. I think it's also important to not introduce triangulation into the circumstances either. Not to talk to a cousin, an aunt, an uncle, people around the fringes. I think to keep the conversation straight and direct with the, the sister is, is the most appropriate. You don't want to bring a third person into a two-person conversation. Mm-hmm. And this ultimately is a conversation between the letter writer 
and the sister. Not even so much the the child because the child's just 15. Yeah. And, you know, gosh, it's also just tricky because there's a lot of other dynamics about closeness to other relatives going on here. And there's some ways in which it, it feels like maybe the letter writer is sort of hoping to make up for a lack of closeness with their own sister by developing closeness with their sister's kids. And I understand that impulse, but I really do think you can't force that there. If you had reason to think that your sister and her husband were being incredibly repressive or dismissive um, or homophobic or transphobic, I would probably have a different suggestion for you, letter writer. But as, as it is, I think to the best of your ability, remember back when you were 15 and how self-conscious you might have felt about elder relatives saying anything along the lines of like, you look really different or like commenting on what you were wearing, uh, you know, how you were doing your hair and, and just try to bear that in mind. Cause I, I can really imagine how it just feels like, I just want to say something nice, but I think sometimes something that is really challenging about transitioning within a family dynamic is just, you get a lot of feedback, you know, you get a, you get a significant looking haircut and suddenly everyone's like, Hey, you look like you're doing something different. And that can be kind of a lot. So bear that in mind too. I don't, I don't mean to say that to scare anyone off ever saying something like warm to somebody who, who might be transitioning, but sometimes people really take it as an invitation to ask a lot of personal questions. And it's actually just a haircut. Whether it means something else or not is, is a, a sort of a moot point because the point is, you know, if people want to tell you something, they'll tell you something. Well, I would say one thing uh, in addition to that is that we, we know at this point that a 15-year-old who presents as non-binary is in fact exactly that, a 15-year-old who presents as non-binary. We know 62% of those who present as non-binary are between 13 and 26 years of age. We don't know exactly what that means. It likely means something. And I think that a little bit of patience here is appropriate too, because this might just be a child who is differentiating from the family of origin or individuating if you're a Jungian. And part of that process is also exploring gender, which is marvelous that young people can do that nowadays. But it doesn't mean that where they are at 15 is where they're going to be at 18 or 26 or 30. And as you say, you know, non-binary is, I, I don't even know that that's a meaningful category because it simply means like, in some significant way detached from a gender binary. So that can mean anything to anyone, um, which is not to say, you know, don't worry, this was merely a passing phase on your niece's part, simply that it can mean nearly anything. And uh, you don't have to assume that something is required uh, on your part. Um, you, You don't have to take any action right now. So some gentle standing down, I think, is called for. You know, you had a book with a lovely, I, I thought slightly cheeky title, As a Woman. Um, I enjoyed it very much. And I was wondering, you know, that came out earlier this summer. Did you find as you were either writing or um, uh, touring on it that you felt like you were gravitating more towards one audience than another? Were you looking for that type of evangelical audience that is, uh, you know, maybe putting people off at arm's length? Were you looking more for queer and trans people within evangelical context? Did you have a sense of of who you wanted to write that book for? Yeah, it's, it's uh, boy, it just sounds arrogant. But when the day's done, I, I wrote the book for human beings. Mm-hmm. To me, the book is about the hero's journey. It was Joseph Campbell defines the hero's journey that I think every single one of us is called on to, but most of us don't ever answer the call. You know, it, it's, 
hero's journey is common to every culture, every age, every language, every ethnicity, always has the same elements and ordinary humans called on an extraordinary journey under the road of trials. And initially they reject that call because, hey, it's the road of trials. Nobody willingly goes onto the road of trials. But eventually a spiritual guide comes into their life that gives them the courage to answer the call onto the hero's journey. And then they find themselves on the road of trials. And then it gets worse. They, they're in the, the dark night of the soul where the true way is wholly lost and they're completely lost, but then they discover that lost is a place too. And they work through whatever they have to work through. And then eventually they get the Holy Grail. And even then they have to bring it back and give it as an offering to those from whom they have departed before they can move on. I think that is kind of typically the hero's journey. And I think we're all called on it. And yet most of us don't find the courage to answer that call. And I've been so encouraged in all the interviews and the people who've written me and talked to me that that is, in fact, how it's being received. It's being received that way by women who are trying to find their own voice. It's being received that way by by trans people who are trying to identify where they are in the process. I'm somebody who very freely talks about living in the borderlands, living in the liminal space between genders, and, and some transgender women don't like that at all. Some are comfortable with that. Um, the one audience that I did not envision was evangelical Christians, mm. uh, because that group has been so utterly dismissive of me that I think there will be a few who think they might be in the book <laughs> who will read it because they're, they think they'll see themselves there. And yes, to those few, they will. But for the most part, I don't think that group is a group that um, shows much interest in going under the hero's journey. I think there are people who live primarily in fear. And, you know, you and I know that there's life on the other side of that fear. Of course you're terrified. You know, I always say that the truth sets you free, but it makes you miserable first. You know, and so, of course, you're going to be made miserable first in the process. That's, that's why they call it the dark night of the soul. But I, I, what I hope this book does is help people realize that, hey, even at 60, you can still answer the call under the hero's journey, that you can make that decision to do the thing you always knew you wanted to do, but never could find the courage quite to do it. Mm. Well, thank you so much for going into a little bit more depth about what that's been like. Um, I, uh, yeah, there's, there's. <laughs> Many, many uh, fond and then less fond memories uh, sort of swimming up for me at, at this point. And I think that probably the best thing to do with some of that is is take it into our next letter because it is so much to do with questions of vocation, desire, intention, certitude, uh, that it just feels like too good a too good a segue not to move into this one if if we're talking about heroes' journeys and uh, thinking of oneself as a hero, or at least as somebody on a, a journey with a specific mission in mind. I think this is the right moment. I will read this for us. Uh, the subject is simply flip-flop. How do I work out what I want when I know I have a habit of not letting myself want things I think I can't or shouldn't have? A few years ago, I realized that I wasn't queer. I was straight up gay. The hardest thing about this was not the breakup of a 10-year relationship, the reshaping of my life, the endless coming out. It was the knowledge that I had so effectively forbidden myself from wanting what I wanted that I hadn't even known that I wanted it for almost 40 years. The current issue under consideration is top surgery. 
non-binary. I have a relatively large bust and have discussed getting a reduction with my doctor for medical reasons. She's on board and we're going to move forward with referrals when that's feasible for me, which won't be for about a year or so. Sometimes I wonder if I wouldn't be happier if I just got top surgery and a flat chest. It's hard for me to disentangle all the feelings and justifications. It's an emotional decision from a lot of angles. I've tried thought experiments to surprise myself into feeling what it would be like to experience my body in different ways. They're effective-ish, but still leave me wondering what I really want. Sometimes I want one thing super strongly and sometimes the other. There are arguments for each. I'm worried that I'll go through a major surgery that drastically changes my body and be unhappy with it. I'm worried that I'm only letting myself want the more conservative options because top surgery feels scary and gatekept. I'm worried that I am pushing myself to want top surgery because I feel pressure to be androgynous in order to be non-binary enough. I'm worried that I don't know how to make a decision that feels true to myself. Lots, lots going on here. Where would you like to start? Oh, it's such, it's such a common experience. And I mean, I'll start self-referentially. I knew I was called to transition when I was watching my favorite television show of all time, Lost. It's in the final season. There comes a point where the protagonist of the show realizes he's been called by the God figure to die. And I just sobbed and sobbed all the way through to dawn. I slept a couple hours, woke up, sobbed. I mean, it just, it was awful. I knew I had been called to transition, but it was two years before I did anything. Because, you know, sometimes... Well, I, you know, again, back to the hero's journey. On the hero's journey, always invariably, initially the person rejects the call because they know it's going to be hard. And I think also because it's not always that clear the direction in which you're supposed to be moving. For me, it was two years. And when I read this letter, I resonated so much because that's where I was for such a long time. It's like, wait, I can't transition because I, I'm, I don't think I'm going to pass as a woman. That, that will be difficult for me to deal with. Or I think I um, can transition, but not until my kids are all old enough to be able to deal with it. And I had all these things that were half excuse and half genuine fears. And sometimes you just don't know until you know. I would say to this letter writer, be patient with yourself. All these things will become clear to you in their appropriate time. I think patience is really useful um, in, in this moment. Yeah, as you say, you know, the thing to, I think, help ground you when you feel sort of lost in the weeds of what am I? What should I do? What does non-binariness mean to me? You know, as we had mentioned earlier, it, it can mean nearly anything, not 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 anything, anything, but it can mean so very many different things that it, it really is a question where, you know, you will have to make some decisions for yourself. It's a um, whole spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so this idea of, well, what am I being asked right now? And what are my options right now? So right now, letter writer, you have discussed a reduction with your doctor and you're going to pursue referrals in about a year. So that gives you at least a year to consider what you would like to ask referrals for. Um, it does not mean that you're about to schedule a consult. It does not mean that you're about to schedule a surgery date. So you have time, for example, to research different surgeons who offer different types of reductions and different types of top surgery. 
to look at some of the results, um, many of them post results on their page, to inquire about their results, to gain specific detailed information about what it might look like to pursue one of those surgeries. You know, you can actually get more information. You can write it down. You can make a pros and cons list. Um, I, I think whenever you are stuck in the weeds, specifics help. So you you have a year to do some of that research. I would encourage you to do some of that research. Talk to people who have had reductions. Talk to people who have had top surgery. Obviously, you know, I want to be clear. Don't like go to your nearest gay bar and look for somebody who seems like they might have gotten top surgery. It's like, can I talk to you about your surgery results? Don't do that. You know, uh, observe the niceties of social etiquette, certainly. But, you know, many people who get top surgery delight in sharing information with people who are considering it and, and will be, you know, perfectly happy to, you know, go into more detail if you ask nicely. So you, you, you have that time. I would say use it, get that information, talk to them about how did they deal with fears about potential regret. Every decision that involves change, uh, invokes the, evokes the possibility of regret. That's true. You will not be able to make this decision in any direction that will result in no regret. So I, I hope that that feels a little bit freeing. If you say, no matter what I do, I will probably regret something at some point. My job is to try to figure out what types of regret I'm prepared to live with and what types of regret I think would be serious enough that I would allow them to change my decision. I think that's such solid, really profoundly helpful advice. Uh, where were you when I was in that time period? <laughs> uh, possibly, possibly in Texas getting top surgery. <laughs> Um, and you know, yes, as, as you say, letter writer, it's emotional decision. Yep. I, you try to think about it as best you can. Yep. But you know, the, the most you can do is still guesswork, even if it's fairly educated guesswork. So you wonder if you would be happier if you had a flat chest again, put pen to paper happier than what, what would you like about that? What feels appealing about that? What feels hot about that? What feels scary about that? What feels intimidating about that? Write it down. Um, And then write down what it feels like to contemplate getting a reduction. If you get a reduction, you could possibly still leave the door open for further top surgery in the future. That's not free, you know? So obviously, like, that carries with it its own problems. It's an additional surgery. Surgery is surgery. It's not nothing. It usually costs money. Um, it's possible your insurance will support you in one or the other. That may or may not influence your decision. You might have to learn a lot about persuading your insurance company to cover things. You know, think about what you know. What would I do if I got top surgery and then later I thought, "Gosh, I wish I'd only gotten a reduction." How do other people deal with problems like that? You would not be the only person to have considered that question before. You could learn more about that. Um, and if, you know, if you think, gosh, you know, parts that would be hard, I would know how to mourn that. I would figure out other ways to like inhabit my body in ways that felt meaningful. I think I could survive that type of regret, even if it would bring me some pain. Or if you think, no, I would just feel collapsed. I would feel like I'd made the worst decision in the world. I wouldn't know how to bear it. You know, that's useful emotional information. That's a notch in the category of go for a reduction. No one's going to make this call for you. And, and no one is going to say, um, you must do this one or you mustn't do that one. Or at least if they do, they won't have the actual ability to you know, stop you from pursuing what you want. But so part of the fear here, I think, letter writer, is because I didn't know what I wanted for so long, I cannot now really be trusted to know what I want about things that have long-lasting effects. And so there's that sense of, I can never really know what I want. I want unknowable things. I hide what I want from myself so effectively that I'm only ever going to know because of regret or 20 years after I've missed my opportunity. 
And I think sometimes it can be tempting to fall a little bit in love with that narrative of isolation and and being impossible to understand. And I don't say that lightly, letter writer. I don't mean to say like, wow, you've really fallen in love with your own self-aggrandizing mythology and you need to get a grip. Uh, I say that very, very lovingly, always falling in love with my stories of being misunderstood. But um, you can learn more. You can sharpen your information. You, you can learn more about what you want and what you don't want, especially if you write it down. Um, that's not an impossible task to discover. And I think um, one thing I, I often recommend to my clients is it's a very simple question. It's actually a question I got from James Hollis, the Jungian analyst, on one of his books. But will this decision, if I make this decision, will it enhance my life or will it diminish my life? I think that is always uh, an appropriate, prescient question to ask in, in any major life decision. If I do this, does it enhance my life or does it diminish my life? Mm-hmm. Uh, if I have top surgery, does that enhance my life or does it diminish my life? And often asked in that way, we realize that we actually know the answer. The answer is right there at the tip of our tongue. It jumps out before all of our um, midbrain uh, desire for safety stops and filters it. Uh, it's, you know, I, I often will say uh, to a client, don't think about this too much, just, just real fast. Will this enhance your life or would it diminish your life if you had top surgery? And generally speaking, the answer comes fast and is not necessarily the one that the safe part of them wants to hear, but their soul wants to hear it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you know, don't ask top surgery to do too much. You say, I'm worried I'll go through a major surgery that drastically changes my body and be unhappy with it. What top surgery can do for you is remove your breast tissue. That's mostly it. No more and no less. It's not going to drastically change your entire self-conception. It's not necessarily going to give you language to explain who you are and what you want, either to others or to yourself. It's not going to remodel your relationship with your mother. Um, it's not going to, uh, you know, do the work that HRT does, the work that socially transitioning does, the work that renaming yourself does. It will only do what top surgery does. So think of it in terms not of what if I'm unhappy. There's so many ways to be unhappy. God, there's so many ways to be unhappy some of which may have nothing to do with top surgery. So I think if you go into it thinking either top surgery will make me happy, in which case I'd be a fool to miss out, or it will make me unhappy, in which case it's my job to mindfully steward away my irresponsible desire for something that will in the long run only harm me. Uh, don't, don't ask too much of it. So think about you know, what do I want in terms of happiness? How does autonomy feed into my ideas of happiness? How does change uh, feed into my ideas of happiness? What will it be like to have a relationship to my chest that is no longer, this is getting a little bit more into my own specific experience, but I can tell you, letter writer, one of the things that I had to do to let go of um, before I had my own top surgery was this, as long as I never got top surgery, I could fantasize about having this perfect chest. As long as I hadn't done it yet, I could think I'm just holding out for like the perfect Captain America surgery where they throw you in like a little tube and then they inject you and you step out and you look like, you know, 2011 era Chris Evans. That's just around the corner. And if I wait long enough, that's going to be the thing that happens to me. Of course, that's not what happens. The thing that I was mourning was the idea of this like, you know, 
uninterrupted, unquote, damaged cis body um, that was not going to happen. You know, I was pursuing transition-related surgery. I was going to have a trans-looking chest. I have a trans-looking chest today. And I had to let go of that, you know, frankly, like disease of fantasy there. Fantasy serves us until it doesn't. And in this case, it was, as long as I don't get top surgery, I can always imagine that I'm about to have the perfect top surgery. And, you know, that may or may not be your path, letter writer. I don't say this saying like, that's your job is get over this so you can get your top surgery and go be exactly like me. You may very well end up considering your options and deciding that you'd rather have a reduction and that is what you want the most. But if some of what you are worried about is, uh, you know, I'm worried I want conservative options because top surgery feels scary, you know, dwell on the things that scare you. What scares you about the possibility of having a recognizably trans chest? What scares you about not having like, you know, obvious signifiers of cis womanhood? Lean into it. What do other people do with that fear? My last thought on this one is I'm worried I'm pushing myself to want top surgery because I feel pressure to be androgynous in order to be non-binary enough. I'm incredibly skeptical of that. Um, Who is pressuring you to be more androgynous? Your boss, your sister, your parents, people at the coffee shop. I, I, I understand that part of what you're saying is like, I'm worried I will pressure myself because I might take androgynous looking people more quote unquote seriously. Um, I just, I really invite you to reconsider that one. You know, where's that pressure coming from? Is that material pressure? Does that have any influence over your income, your health, your safety, your social life? Or is it just a sort of general fear you have about the possibility of somebody who's, you know, quote unquote, more non-binary than you? Um, I would, I would get real skeptical of that one. So there is a question, another one that I often ask of my clients, and it actually shows up in the last chapter of my book. I say, um, fear makes you want to go back. Happiness makes you want to stand still, but joy calls you forward. And I really believe that's true. I think that the call toward authenticity, it, I believe it's sacred and holy and for the greater good. And I don't say those as specifically religious language or certainly not Christian language. I, I believe that that being true to who you are is, is at the essence of what it means to be human. But I also think that we get, particularly Americans, we get too fixated on, well, will this make me happy? You know, there are days I'm happier post-transition. There are days I'm not as happy as I was before. Mm -hmm. But joy? Oh, yeah. Joy is feeling in the flow. Joy is trusting the flow of your life, that you're not going against the tide, you're going with the tide. Joy is knowing you've done the right thing. It is that sense of purpose that something bigger than yourself has called you forward and that the offering you're going to make to the world because of that is a lasting offering. And it's not so much about happiness as it is about joy. Yeah. I think the last thing I'll add to that is I was in a really cheesy play when I was in high school. It was Neil Simon's Lost in Yonkers. And as, as befits all uh, you know, proto-transmasculine people everywhere, I played the grandmother character. And, you know, she's having this fight with her grandkid uh, towards the end of the play. And the kid says something like, if it's a mistake, let it be my mistake. And I think, you know, if accessing things like purpose, vocation, a higher sense of self feel too difficult for you in this moment, um, you know, think of it in terms of what mistakes am I prepared to own and live with? 
you know, one of the things that I thought going into my top surgery, because I also dealt with uncertainty at various moments was, would I rather go for this and then have like painful moments of regret um, or not do it, which I, you know, I can call this off right now um, and go live with that kind of regret. Which regret would I rather deal with? And it felt pretty clear to me in that moment, even if I didn't necessarily have an ironclad guaranteed sense of this is going to make my life better. I thought like, I'm prepared to live with, like, I tried top surgery and it kind of fucked me up. Um, you know, sometimes when you're making difficult decisions, the, the best thing to do is to think about what's the worst case scenario I'd rather have. Because there's always a worst case scenario of any choice. Yeah, that was helpful to me in my process was the recognition that, yeah, there, there are things I'm going to regret. There are days I'm going to say, wait, what? Um, but that I trusted that my gut knew which direction I needed to go that would cause far fewer regrets and far greater joy. And that, I think, that was my call. That was the point of which, oh, yep, yep, I got to do this. I've got to do this and explode the family narrative and lose all my jobs in the evangelical world. And, and you know, I, I mean, over the next four years post-transition, I earned a total of $23,000 in, in, in 48 months. You know, mm-hmm. I, I mean, it was, it was hell. But uh, I no, I've, there are no regrets. Yeah. It's not been easy, but there are no regrets. I remember so vividly, you know, when I had sort of like started the ball rolling by taking what I told myself was like a low dose test drive of testosterone, <laughs> just trying it out, just trying to see. It's just, I'm holding it for yeah, a Yeah, that's what I did. Just the and, opposite. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, I was like watching some movie with my sister who I was very close to at the time. And I had this awful moment of feeling like I'm going to lose my family. Um, and at the time that just seemed like the worst thing in the world. And genuinely like, so now, several years later, I get to say like one of the great things the transition did for me was put me in a position where I was able to lose my family, which as it turned out, was necessary, important, and good. And I would never have known that or felt that at the time. I would have felt like yeah. that would only be a loss. That would only be a tragedy. There would be no way for that to be uh, a sign of living the good life or the best possible life. And you know, in many ways, it removed my allegiance to a family unit that was more interested in preserving the family's secret interests than in pursuing like the greater good of the community. And so, oh God, I, I, how much I can identify with that? Yep. Yeah, and you know, it shocked me and stunned me and broke my heart. And then it was also just immediately clear: I don't want to do that. I don't want to join you in your weird, creepy secret con- contract. Um, I want to go live the kind of life that enables me to sleep at night. And um, transition put me, I think, in a better position for that. I think at one point I thought I was not a person of courage. I was offered a a senior pastor position at one of the largest churches in the Midwest, and I turned it down. And I thought, Mm -hmm. well, I'm just not a person who has much courage. And I turned it down because it wasn't my call. It was somebody else's call. Another person's call is another person's call. My call was to transition. And when I finally answered that call, I had no question about whether or not I was a person of courage. Of course, I'm a person of courage. We're all a person of courage when we know what the call is and we say yes to it. I love, all I can think now is, gosh, I wonder if I know which megachurch it is. And uh, (laughs) I I look forward to asking you off the air uh, if my guess is right. Okay. In the meantime, that's purely for gossip reasons. There's nothing courageous about it. I'm, I'm simply nosy. Um, we have time, if you're amenable, for a very quick lightning round. 
This is a surprise letter. You haven't seen it before. I will read it. You'll have one minute to answer it. uh, And then I'll have one minute to answer it. And hopefully that'll be enough time to settle their hash. The subject is student of love. I'm a lesbian finishing a demanding PhD program. I've never dated, but I know I want to start once I'm finished with my dissertation. My question is more about what I can do in the meantime to make sure I'm in a good place to do it right. I know people, quote, work on themselves before getting into dating and relationships, but what in the world does that even mean? Is there a syllabus, a workbook? I'm in therapy working through a lot of different stuff like family trauma, body issues, anxiety, depression, self-worth, but I don't think that's the same thing. Help. I've got one minute on the clock. Okay. We were made to be in relationship. As a species, we don't do so well when we're on our own. We do much better when we are in contact with other people, and particularly when we're developing intimate relationships. And they don't even have to be sexually intimate relationships, but where there is, in fact, a deep desire to express all of who you are to another human being who's willing to express all of who they are to you. And I think that often then that does result in a physical relationship. And in discovering you're a lesbian, I think you'll discover what I've discovered as a lesbian, which is how incredibly wonderful it is to be in an intimate relationship with someone whose body is very similar to yours as opposed to dissimilar to yours. But it took me a long time and a lot of courage to finally be able to say that I was ready to step into that. And if you take a look at chapter 20 of my book, you'll see an entire chapter on the subject. (laughs) Beautiful. That was a great shorthand. All right. I'm putting a minute on the clock for myself. Uh, Letter writer, you are right to be confused and suspicious of the phrase working on themselves because uh, it can mean literally anything. There is no one coherent, consistent sense of what it means. And so I hope you will uh, do your best to free yourself from the fear that you need to hold yourself up to the standard of having sufficiently worked on yourself. You want to go on some dates. That's great. Just go on some dates. That's it. You do not have to follow a syllabus or a workbook. I think that that might be just like grad school brain talking, which is just that anything that I do must have a syllabus. This one doesn't. You should try to treat the people that you go on dates with, you know, kindly and with general respect, but you are not obligated to heal all of your past trauma before you want to get a, you know, a nice dinner with somebody you think is cute. Ask out girls you like. Have a great time. Do not overthink this one. You're just fine. Go go, go with my blessing. That's it. I'm done. Uh, I found that letter incredibly sweet and charming and earnest. And I really, really oh, hope. Oh, I just love that. Yeah. And that whole sense of working on yourself. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And if you're working on yourself and it's not in the context of relationship, uh, then it's not really working on yourself now, is it? Yeah, just love the idea. Like, now, do I have to fill out a syllabus before I'm allowed to date women? No. Wonderful news. You can just ask them out. You know, I I was thinking of the uh, opening line of um, uh, Mary Oliver's The Wild Geese. Uh, You do not have to be good. You do not have to crawl (laughs) on your knees for 100 miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. I just, I love that opening line. That might be the most lesbian thing that's ever happened on this show. Um, that is deep. That is buried deep within the the you know most resonant layers of lesbian arcana. Um, Paula, thank you so so much for taking time out of your day to be with us, and and especially for sharing uh, uh, that wonderful last note of just softness and embodiment and animals and Mary Oliver. Um, have a fabulous rest of your day, and thank you again. 
It's a pleasure being with you. Thanks for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up, to subscribe, or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Also, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you get a minute. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations and interview questions with our guests. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you need some little advice or big advice and you'd like me to read your letter on the show, head to slate.com slash mood to find our big mood, little mood listener question form or find a link in the description of the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. It is not simply your job to maintain neutrality for the rest of the family. It is also your job to look after yourself and to consider what even indirect relationships to someone who has abused you uh, might be doing to your overall well-being. I think a lot of us have a personality that's always moving in the direction of reconciliation and particularly children with a narcissistic parent because Mm -hmm. a narcissistic parent is not ever going to admit what he or she has done wrong. And so you come to realize very early in life that it's just better if you acquiesce and move on. And that your own mental health, your own psychological, spiritual health is dependent on knowing the truth and dealing with the truth. I always say to clients who have had difficult circumstances growing up, you really cannot move too quickly to achieve forgiveness. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.